You're live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo in studio today with Andy Barrar. Lots of stuff to talk about on this uh, Easter long weekend. We'll uh, be chatting about Twitter. Twitter is 10 years old now, Andy. I, I can't believe it. Uh, it it just seems like Twitter was on uh, came on the scene just a couple of years ago, but ten years that's a that's kind of a big deal. Uh, we'll also be talking about drone use. Uh, lots of people getting into drones now. I've been trying one out myself, but uh, can you make money with drones? Are there different rules from uh, the leisure use of drones as opposed to business use? There are, and it's important that everyone knows. So we'll uh, be talking with uh, an expert on that. And uh, unless you're living under a rock this week, uh, the big Apple announcement uh, on Monday. New Apple stuff. On the line, we've got uh, our good friend uh, good friend Shane Dingman. He's a technology editor over at the Globe and Mail. Thanks for joining us today, Shane. Hey, guys. What's up? Well, uh, we're talking all things uh, Apple in this uh, first part of the uh, the show. Uh, you had a chance to tune in to the, uh, the big launch event? Sure, and we all do, right, even though uh, sometimes there's a bit of diminishing returns going on. <laughs> and what do you mean by that, Shane? I don't know. Did You guys watched it, I'm sure. Did you not feel that this year was kind of a rushed affair? It, it clocked in at just a little bit over an hour. They kind of whipped right through things like watch updates and some of the software updates. There was some social uh, stuff like with HealthKit and how it's going to change the world and, uh, and the Renew program, which, how that's going to change the world and I don't know, they just kind of really blurred through, and then they got to the phone, and it's like, okay, it's it's called the SE. It's like an iPhone 6S, but uh, smaller, and uh, doesn't have force touch, so it doesn't have, like, you know, 3D touch. So you're kind of like, uh, you know, left kind of hanging. I guess, from my perspective, the big news uh, of the week uh, of the week would be that the iPad Pro is sort of the new gold standard iPad. I, I would I would guess they wouldn't. They're not going to update the iPad Air to a new version. I think that that's going to be orphan like some of the previous generations of iPhone or iPad. Shane, the thing about the Apple event, and we know this, there's like websites just about Apple rumors that like, are dedicated to just talking about Apple rumors, especially when these kind of uh, events happen. Well, what do you think? Over the last couple of years, it's like we don't, th- these events only confirm what we already know. There's really no more secrets that you used to get when Steve Jobs was doing the event. I'm a few minds on this. You know, I, I don't obviously I don't have any insider information about how much Apple gives away versus it doesn't give away. But we do know that there are certain favored people that they will seed information to or early access to. You know, Mr. Gruber, John Gruber over at Daring Fireball is one of the guys who gets early looks at stuff. You know, fairly frequently. Um, you know, something like this week when the news was kind of like, okay, this is a you know a cost play and a sort of tweak of the iPad line, like that's. If you had that as a big secret and a big reveal and everybody was shocked, they wouldn't have been shocked. They would have been disappointed, right? So I feel like sometimes for some products, they kind of kind of lift the lid a little bit, let people in a little bit. And then, the, you know, some of the anticipation is, is uh, you know, it, it blunts expectations in case things are not going amazingly well. I mean, uh, the watch, for example, even though we knew a fair bit about the watch, it was under a much tighter lock and key than this, uh, this iPhone was. Uh, so they can still kind of pull, put a lot of that stuff back in the box when they really need to, um, or at least so it's, it seems like maybe they release more information that's counter to what actually happens in, in the cases when they want to keep stuff private. It is an interesting thought because, you know, uh, I think under the uh, the leadership of Tim Cook, he's kind of got more experience in the, the supply chain and coming up with the different price points and things like that. Obviously, Steve Jobs, uh, the innovator, the showman. Uh, but under Tim Cook's uh, 
uh, I guess, leadership. They've really tried to hit all the different price points, hit more uh, markets, and uh, it looks like that's what they're doing with these new devices that they've uh, launched you know, this week here. They're basically trying to hit different sizes and different price points for, for everything so they can capture a larger share of the market. Yeah, except for that all-important one when it comes to smartphones, right? Like, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the stats. Something like, uh, you know, like 70% of uh, phone sales are, you know, or Android phone sales, rather, are in that under $200 range. You know, the cheap Android phone is the main driver of the smartphone business. But, of course, there's not a ton of margin in that, so Apple stays away from it. And this phone in Canada is like 580 bucks. Uh, entry level, the 16-gigabyte version, which nobody should buy a 16-gigabyte version of a phone, um, particularly a phone like I like this thing shoots in 4K. You know, how many how many 4K videos or live photos can you put on this phone at 16 gigs before it's full? So they still are trying to stay away from the lowest end of the smartphone game, so they don't have a, a device for every price tier. But, uh, you know, uh, I, do, I do see this as being aimed at that kind of like that big middle chunk of like like the Indian market or maybe some other overseas markets where they they can expect to maybe take home 20% of the really nice cream of the of the smartphone market uh, which is you know all to the the good of their bottom line well, and that's the thing for them, really. It's all about the profit. Compared to pretty well every other smartphone and device manufacturer out there, uh, they have some of the highest profits in the industry in any category they get into. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we still don't really know what they're... I mean, they lowered the price on the watch, right? That was another thing they did this week. So, uh, I mean, uh, all the sort of channel checks and all the sort of uh, industry, um, you know, sort of estimates are that they're just killing it in the in the smart watch category of wearables. I think Fitbit's still the overall wearables leader. But, uh, you know, in terms of smart watches, that premium smart watch, they're really winning. But <clears throat> I don't know how much the margins are on that watch, except for at the highest end, right? Like, obviously, the gold watch, that's a great margin. But how many <laughs> of those, those watches that they're selling are the cheapest watch? Uh, we don't know that yet. And maybe when we do, we'll have a better sense if they can keep that historic Apple margin. Now, Shane, going back to the iPhone, um, what, Mike, I'm going to ask you this question, too, because I'm really confused. Why are they offering, like you said, the 16-gig version, or you can go to the 64? Whatever happened to the 32-gig version of the iPhone? Yeah, seriously. The, uh, the, the, the nice, the, the friendly phone, you know, like uh, just good enough, uh, good solid price maybe, but uh, not, uh, you know, not, not essentially a throwaway phone, like, you know, you can't keep anything on. I, I don't know. I'm surprised, too. Um, it's not how I would have gone, but I, I guess that's why I don't run the most valuable company in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so what we know about the iPhone uh, SE, uh, it's a smaller version of uh, the current uh, 6 and or 6S and 6S Plus, uh, whereas the 6S has a 4.7-inch uh, a screen, I believe. Uh, the iPhone SE has a 4-inch uh, screen, much like the uh, iPhone 5 and 5S. And uh, from the stats I've been reading, uh, a good chunk of... Uh, you know, iPhone users are are in that in that size range. I think they said about forty percent. Well, I was impressed that just in terms of new sales, they sold thirty million a new uh, like uh, iPhone five S's in uh, twenty fifteen. That's a huge number for essentially a three year old phone. So, I mean, no question, they're going to probably sell that many or more this year. You know, or, or at least in the next calendar year, you can totally see them selling more than thirty million because it's a newer phone and it is a little cheaper than the existing six line. 
So, I mean, no question they're going to sell a lot of these phones. Uh, I, I think, as you, you guys have probably noticed, one of the big problems with Apple stock is that everyone says, you know, it's possible that they have reached peak iPhone, that they really need to have something fantastic in the fall with the update of this for the iPhone 7 to move the needle on, you know, that, that next sort of 200 million iPhones they're going to try to sell or 220 or 230 iPhones they need to sell to really keep Wall Street impressed. Um, that's a, it's getting tough to sell that many iPhones in a year. Considering that, like, they make all their money from the iPhone. Like, if you look at the numbers, Apple is an iPhone company in terms of the revenue that they get from it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, in the, the number two category is iPad, and uh, that's why they updated the, to the, the sort of 9.7 Pro, you know, which is they say is like the replacement for a PC. And I, I mean, I've come around on the, the 12-inch Pro. I thought initially that nobody was ever going to use that as a productivity device, but it is actually pretty useful. I mean, the lightness of it is really its major selling point. It's a really big screen. It's pretty useful with the keyboard, and it's so light that it like blows almost everything. But like maybe the the, the iPads or the uh, the MacBook C out of the water in terms of weight and in terms of carrying around. But I just don't see like having to stick all these dongles on so you can get Ethernet access or powered USB access as a replacement for a PC. Like the, the idea that we're going to replace like 600 million PCs with iPads, that's, that's nonsense. That's not going to happen, despite what Phil Schiller says. Well, we're going to take a break here, Shane, and uh, we're going to talk more about the new uh, iPad uh, Pro uh, when we come back from the break and whether people should look at upgrading or not. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected, Mike and Andy here in studio this weekend. Lots more great tech stuff on the show. We'll be talking about uh, Twitter turning 10 and also uh, about droning. There are different rules for people that are just doing it as a hobby as opposed to people trying to make money with them. You will need to stay tuned for that and uh, find out uh, the rules. On the line right now, we've got our good friend Shane Dingman. He is the uh, technology editor over at the Globe and Mail. We're talking about uh, the new Apple news this week. Uh, we talked about the, the new iPhone SE and uh, just getting into the new iPad Pro. And uh, Shane, we're just talking before on the last segment, uh, you know, you've kind of come around on the larger uh, version. I think that's the 12.9 inch uh, screen. I've been using that myself for traveling now. I carry that instead of carrying uh, both an iPad and my MacBook. I can actually get my work done on that iPad Pro. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, <clears throat> so uh, your primary use, I imagine, would be web surfing and writing, right? These are yeah. the two. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that it gets tougher when you're starting to do something like Excel. Um, you know, I just think that that's a, that fine control that a mouse provides you for, like, you know, data work or, you know, a lot of uh, copying and pasting and stuff like that. I, I find it's a little bit challenged still for that kind of thing. But if you're mostly composing and you're mostly researching, it's great, you know. But, you know, from what, uh, you know, when they did launch the iPad Pro, uh, you know, they basically, you know, said with the specs that are on, uh, you know, the iPad Pro, it is more powerful than, I think they said, 70% of the laptops that are out in the market today. Uh, yeah, sure, I can believe it, um, but in, just in terms of what's the power used for, right? Like, yeah. you know, again, I'm not really sure that you would be using Final Cut uh, type of stuff on, a, on a, an iPad. You know, it's, it's just not as precise as, like, the full Mac version. You know, I think that's kind of the problem that they've, they've run into with this. Um, you know, uh, how long have we all been waiting for them to add touchscreen capabilities to MacBooks? Because you want all of that, you know, sort of Mac-level professional software, and you want to have a touchscreen. The Pro, as good as it is, doesn't have Mac-level software. It still has iPad software. So it's still kind of got these, you know, mobile versions, these stripped-down versions, 
they kind of need to get the software a little bit closer to what a full productivity suite looks like on laptop to get it there. But, I mean, I think... And, and a mouse? New... Sorry, go ahead. And a mouse? Yeah, and a mouse! A mouse! You yeah. know, like, I certainly felt like I was missing that. Uh, but I think you can get... There's extensions you could probably get if you were really into it. But, I don't know, I don't, I don't travel with a mouse, so... <laughs> yeah, but, you know, if they add a touchscreen to the MacBook or they add a mouse capability to the iPad uh, Pro, wouldn't that basically be cannibalizing? You're blurring those, the lines. Yeah, those, those product lines. Yeah, but they sell what, like, I'm trying to think, I think it's, they sell, like, you know, uh, in a quarter, the, on average quarter, like 5 million MacBooks to, like, sort of 15 million iPads. You know, the unit price per MacBook is a little bit higher for, uh, for the most part. But when you're getting to the upper end of these new iPads, like this new one, the 256 gig iPad, that's like a $1,200 iPad in Canada. Um, that's, that's a MacBook Air. You know, that's the same price. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when when they start to add more more sort of capability to these things and the prices get closer, the argument about cannibalizing starts to fall away a little bit. I think they are eventually going to get there. And they're, in some ways, for such a, you know, what we think of as a revolutionary company, under Tim Cook, they become very iterative, very deliberate about getting, as you said before, all those market segments ticked off, and they want to make sure they have the full umbrella for every price, every purpose, uh, except for the very lowest end where they're not making much money. Shane, what do you what do you think is the future of the MacBook? Because it almost seems overpriced now when you when you look at it from the specs compared to say like the iPad Pro. Like where where do you see that whole category going? I don't know. It's a tough one. Uh, you know, uh, increasingly people with the you know Apple devices don't really seem to feel like they need the MacBook. Right? It's not central to the experience of owning uh, an iPhone or an iPad anymore. It used to be very much that like that stuff lived in concert with your other computing life, and increasingly it's not necessary. You know, you, you can pretty much do everything you need to do in terms of updates and syncing and all the rest of it just on the phone, and you don't even need that laptop. So. You know, I have a hard time imagining that we'll ever be in a world without laptops and PCs, but it's increasingly not the driver. Like, obviously, for years it has not been the driver of their sales, as you said before, if they're an iPhone company. Um, so they just need, you know, I think you want to start getting weird about it. You look forward to the idea that, you know, Macs will essentially, you know, disappear into the woodwork. You know, like you'll have a, a computer that's in the home somewhere and you interface with it in other ways other than like as a keyboard and uh, in a screen welded together like that. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at uh, what they announced, an iPad Pro uh, 9.7 inch, basically the same size as the regular iPad uh, Airs, um, but uh, a couple hundred dollars more. Yep. Well, I mean, it has more stuff, right? Like you can do you know, this new True Tone light filtering thing. That's a fascinating feature. I have to say, that's the, that's the one feature of that event that got me to sit up for a minute because you, that's the kind of technology in terms of like ease of use and like sort of paper white. You know, it measures the room, the light in the room, and then it you know mirrors that effect on the on the page as the, on the screen as if it were a piece of paper that was reflecting the ambient light uh, conditions where you were. That's a you know amazing sort of awareness piece of technology, and there's Obviously, a lot of cool stuff that goes into making something like that it seems like a simple feature. It's actually hugely difficult, um, and it's an impressive engineering feat. So, you know, at this point, I'd say that the iPad, the Pro, is the most advanced iOS mobile device on the market. Um, and I think the goal is to really get all those people who've got four- or five-year-old iPads to upgrade. This, this, more than any iPad in previous years, really gives you a reason to do it. It's not just lighter it's not just, uh, you know, got more memory or a better processor. It's got all of that, and it's got things like, you know, the, uh, the pencil capability. You can use the pencil with it. It's 
got the keyboard. It's probably the most, you know, complete reason to buy an iPad in years. Well, Jay, you made a good point. You know, the people that have that have an iPad haven't upgraded. You know, they'll they'll use that for two, three, four years. But those people, when when the iPad first came out, it was it was considered a consumption device. You would consume content. Do you think the public is ready to move towards using tablets like the iPad, the iPad Pro, as a productivity device in lieu of their laptops? Um, no, and <clears throat> you know they they mentioned that they over the whole history of the iPad since 2010, they've sold 200 million of the 9.7 inch or 10 inch essentially um, iPads. You know, so that's you know they sell that many iPhones in a year these days. So th- this category for them is important, and they do want to convert more of those people who might think to use it for work, and they are looking essentially at you know also people who maybe were thinking of buying like a Chromebook, you know, or something like that. Like, it's like, oh, well, I just want a computer that's easy to use and doesn't have a lot of challenges. I mean, that's one of iPad's main sort of, you know, uh, drivers. It's easy. It's not hard to figure it out. There's no weird loading issues with software. There's no screens, you know, there's no, you know, um, launching bar and all the rest of it. Like, it's, it's pretty straight up. It's very much an iOS device still. Um, so I think that they kind of want to have it all, right? They want to have everybody who has been holding off to upgrade their consumption device. For those people, they've got all new screen tech and brighter screen and, you know, more pixels than ever and all the rest of it. For people who want to have that productivity element to it, they've got the keyboard, they've got the pencil, they've, you know, they've, uh, you know, they've also got some help from some partners. You know, Windows increasingly makes great software available to the iPad. And, uh, you know, they, they're starting to look now at this full package. Like, maybe they don't have to be the perfect laptop for uh, every consumptive, or sorry, every productivity person. And maybe they're not the, the cheapest consumption device tablet, but they're kind of that uh, very high-quality middle for a lot of different consumers. Well, I'm going to get all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, I want to thank you. considering buying the Pro again. Like, you know, yeah. it happens every couple of years. You're like, ah, oh, I'm getting that. I don't care how much it costs. Well, we're in the same boat there. Shane, uh, I want to thank you again for joining us. Where can people find out more about you? You can always follow us on uh, at Globe Technology on Twitter or at, at Shane Dingman, same place. That was Shane Dingman. He's a technology editor over at the Globe and Mail. When we come back from the break, we've got a few other uh, stories we're following. Twitter turns 10, and uh, we'll find out uh, about the laws about droning and uh, how you can make money doing it or not, <laughs> see if you're breaking the rules. And uh, are we ever going to see a, a smartphone battery that's going to last more than a day? You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Andy Barrar. we still got lots of great things to talk about. Of course, Twitter's turning 10. Do you care? Did you give Twitter a present, Mike? I did not give them a present. I didn't think you would. We'll uh, see where they're at and uh, where they're headed. Uh, We'll also be talking about uh, smartphone batteries. Will we ever see a smartphone battery that lasts more than a day? We've got some uh, thoughts on that. I want to talk about drones right now. On the line, we've got uh, David Griffiths. He's a uh, broadcast instructor over at BCI2, uh, BCIT and, uh, I guess, a drone enthusiast and expert. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Not a problem, Mike. So, uh, you know, we've known each other for, uh, for a few years. Uh, you are really gotten into droning in a big way, I guess, over the past uh, couple years. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think we've seen an explosion in drone sales. But uh, there are some rules regarding what you can do with the drone, uh, you know, from, I guess, a hobbyist standpoint and a professional standpoint. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it really is the government trying to put a bit of a framework around a growing industry. So they've, I would say, tried to treat it a little bit gently. But when you really look at the regulations, what they're really coming down to is just kind of be smart and don't put yourself or your UAV in an uh, area where you could actually hurt somebody or damage somebody's property. And so uh, for for hobbyists, you know, you can basically fly these things in a lot of places as long as I guess you're not flying near airports uh, or over busy streets and things things like that. Yeah, and I would say that the airport restriction is probably the one that most people um, either are not aware of or maybe they're just not aware of how far it extends. But it's generally nine kilometers away from any kind of aircraft uh, aerodrome. So that's a fairly big area that covers, for example, in, in the lower mainland, most of Richmond, a substantial am- amount of downtown Vancouver, or some of the North Shore. So you really kind of uh, should be looking at some maps to find out where the permitted places to fly are. And, you know, generally, the further away you get from those airports, the easier it is. And you don't really have a lot of restrictions, as long as you sort of stay to the basics. And, you know, besides the airport, there's a a height restriction. Uh, In most cases, that's about 90 meters, which is still fairly high. You can get some really nice shots from that. But it's low enough that you're not going to get in the way of, of, um, you know, passenger aircraft. And staying a certain distance away from, you know, people and structures and gatherings and that sort of thing. So what they really don't want is people, you know, flying their drone over top of, you know, busy, you know, public events or, you know, busy gatherings where if something potentially went wrong with your drone, that it could fall out of the sky and maybe hurt somebody or damage property. Dave, what happens if you're kind of a recreational drone user and you want to go pro, you want to go into the commercial space? How do you basically uh, get the permits to, say, fly your drone in a downtown area? Well, I, well, it's it's a good question because you know some of these hobbyists, like maybe their buddy's a realtor, and the realtor will come to them, "Hey, can you just shoot this this house or this neighborhood for me?" Exactly. But at that point, they're now doing it for commercial use. That's right. And yeah, the, the, um, it actually depends on, uh, first off, where you want to fly and sort of at what level. So uh, when you're talking about really large drones, like the type that, for example, like um, movie productions might use, um, they have much stricter requirements because they are flying a quite a large uh, aircraft that could actually substantially hurt people or property if something goes wrong. But with smaller ones, the biggest change between a hobbyist drone and a commercial one is really uh, liability insurance. The, the government regulations uh, stipulate that you need uh, $100,000 of liability insurance before you can fly commercially for any purpose. And that right now is sort of the main, I would, not really sticking point, but that's the main complication because there's not many um, insurance agencies that offer that coverage. And when they do, it tends to be a little on the expensive side unless you have an ongoing business where you can make that money back. And how long does it take to get these kind of permits if you, if you are, a, like, say, a commercial drone user? How many weeks or days will it take to get through all the paperwork? It really depends on how much of a track record that you have with Transport Canada. So if you're starting out and it might be the first few times you've flown commercially, they might want a fairly detailed um, list of, you know, where you're flying and what you're going to be doing and basically kind of just 
putting you through the hoops to make sure that they know that um, you understand the regulations and that you're adhering to the safety rules as they are written. Um, typically, what will happen, or at least what has been happening, um, especially due to the volume of inquiries going up, is that as they get more comfortable with you as a UAV drone operator, they'll start giving you more permission, processing your stuff a little faster, and in some cases offering sort of a blanket permission, um, which is a special flight operation certificate, which lets you fly pretty much you know wherever you want, because at that point, they realize that you understand the regulations and aren't going to break the rules. Now, David, here's another question. Sorry, I got a hundred questions about drones because <laughs> no I've been thinking about this a lot. A mm-hmm. lot of these drones come with built-in cameras or you could add, say, a GoPro. If mm-hmm. you are a recreational drone user, are you allowed to record footage of, of your drone experience or do you have to get a permit for that? No, you're allowed to record footage from it. The way that the regulations written now is even for um, uh, hobbyist users, what you're not permitted to do is fly solely with a camera mounted on your device. So even though a lot of the drones have the ability to fly around and view the output of the, the camera mounted on the unit through your, through your tablet or through your phone, the regulation says that you're not, you can record whatever's coming in. That's not a problem, but you're not allowed to fly solely by what you're seeing on your device. So you always have to have it within sight and within control, uh, unaided from the operator. When you get to the slightly more advanced uh, commercial models, and some of those commercial models let you have one person piloting the, the drone and one person kind of operating the camera, then what it allows you to do is the camera operator can be focused on the camera view through their device, and then your pilot can just be flying by seeing where it's flying optically without you know, having to look at the camera screen. Yeah, I've, I've been trying out uh, some droning myself, David. You'd be proud of me. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've got that, uh, that new Parrot one, the Bebop 2. Is that yeah. the one, Andy? Yeah. It scares the hell out of me. Like, I am always scared that I'm going to smash into a tree or that thing's going to drop from the sky and, and kill somebody. You know what? A little fear is probably not a bad thing. Um, I, the, the big thing that I always recommend when people get uh, a new device like this is you want to be comfortable flying it. So before you start flying it around people or in areas where, you know, even where you're around trees or water, is get that comfort level up. You know, go into an open space, an open field somewhere with no structures, and get, really get a feel for how the, uh, how the drone responds to your controls. Um, what happens, you know, if something goes wrong, if you lose power on your transmitter, most times it'll fly right back and land right in front of you. So they tend to be very safe, but until you kind of build up that confidence and knowing how it might, you know, handle in a unforeseen event, you know, it pays to take a little, little slow, a little safe off the beginning. And then once you get really comfortable and you know you can handle an emergency with it, you know, then you might be able to get a few of those really cool shots that you see on YouTube or, you know, on your friend's uh, YouTube channel, that sort of thing. I learned pretty quickly to read the instructions in full. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, there is a lot of good instructions that come with the units. The newer ones are very easy to fly. Um, You know, there's a lot of GPS assist. There's a lot of, you know, safety precautions built into them. So if something goes wrong, they tend to come right back to you without kind of just going crazy and flying off into the distance. Um, So, you know, I think that reading the manual and certainly talking to other operators, and in some cases there are opportunities to take, like, UAV courses, um, you know, might be a a day or two on a weekend sort of thing that would teach you the basics of how to operate your craft and also, you know, teach you the regulations and how to make sure you're doing everything properly. Insurance. Mm -hmm. How much is that? 
Well, I did some ballpark checking with one agent in town, and the numbers I got for one year of licensing were around $1,000. So that's for someone um, who might not have that much experience, and certainly I would suspect that as they get more experienced, the um, the price would go down. But for someone starting to get going and maybe thinking this could be uh, you know, a good part of, like for example, a real estate business or a surveying business, if you're just getting going, I would say that you know, $1,000, $1,200 is probably a starting point that you should be looking at. Um, I would suspect also that for, of course, larger drones and movie industry and that sort of thing, they would be paying quite a bit more. David, I want to thank you uh, so much for joining us uh, on the show, as uh, always. Uh, anywhere people can find you? Uh, well, they can find me at BCIT, uh, David underscore Griffiths at BCIT.ca. And uh, we actually do offer some uh, drone training at BCIT, too, so you never know. If someone's interested, they might be able to find a course here, too. I better take that. You should go back <laughs> to school, Mike. Yeah, I hope my neighbors aren't listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, David. You're very welcome. Thanks, Mike. It was David Griffiths from BCIT talking about uh, drone technology. When we come back, Twitter turns 10. Where is it headed? You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here in the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. Mike and Andy here back on Get Connected. We're talking Twitter now. Twitter is 10 years old, Andy. It's hard to believe. It just shows uh, that it, social media is really... Young. Well, it's, it's kind of old. It's a decade old now. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Twitter, uh, you know, we've seen things like Facebook explode. There's other tools out there like Snapchat, uh, WhatsApp. Uh, obviously, they have their own strengths and, and weaknesses. Uh, Twitter, I think they've got about 320 million users. Mm -hmm. uh, they made $2 billion in revenue last year, uh, but still cannot compare or compete against the likes of Facebook, who has over 1.6 billion that's 1.6 billion worldwide active users. Yeah, that's the that's the ironic thing is is Facebook is trying to become more like Twitter. They're trying to be more like if there's a sporting event, they want you to be able to talk about it on Facebook. And yet Twitter is trying to be more like Facebook in terms of finding ad dollars. And they just haven't really been able to do the same job as Facebook. And there's a lot of competition. You, you see them kind of go back and forth. Like Twitter came up with the hashtag. And now Facebook uses the hashtag as well. So you kind of see people kind of moving back and forth. Usually what you see in terms of social media is one person will like one or the other. I know you are heavy onto Facebook. Myself, I'm very heavy on Twitter just because uh, I like it for, I get information really quickly, like information going like at the moment. And it's always fun to be on Twitter and you see like Kanye West go on rants and it is so funny because he doesn't use Twitter like all the time, but he'll go on a rant like late at night and just post one after another after another. And uh, you know, that's why I, I see there's a space for Twitter to exist in this world because any kind of big event, news event, that's where most people go to is to Twitter to get that breaking news. You know, I can see the use for it. There's no question. Uh, obviously, for getting up to date on the latest events, for any news organization, uh, for celebrities, yes. comedians, um, I just don't know, you know, for a day-to-day -day use for normal human beings, uh, is Twitter a big part of their lives, really, compared to like a Facebook? And I know it's get, you know skewing towards more of an older demographic on Facebook, and the kids aren't using it as much. Uh, they're more into uh, Snapchat and things like that. However, they still maintain Facebook accounts. They're using 
uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, so um, and Instagram. Uh, Facebook owns Instagram, That's so right. I think Facebook has really um, done a good job of trying to stay relevant, you know, between all the different demographics. And I just don't know if Twitter has been able to do that or has the war chest, you know, the money uh, to actually go out and and put something together, or or are they what they are? Well, you, you make know, a, will they be around in ten years? You make a good point. You know, like you said, there's about what three hundred somewhat million, three hundred twenty million, yeah, three hundred twenty uh, Twitter users. How many of them are posting each day? That's the problem because it's like one percent is doing ninety nine percent of the postings. Yeah, and that's okay because you could use Twitter as just to, to consume content. You don't necessarily have to sit there and tweet. What but to me, having. it's like a fire hose, though. How so? Well, because you know, I'm following maybe a few thousand people. And it's just, you know, you look at the, the Twitter feed, it's just like... Yes, and that's why, and this is what I've done. I've made what's called lists in Twitter. Okay. And I use a, a, a platform that's from here in Vancouver called Hootsuite. It's a great social media platform. And what I've done is I've created, because there's a lot of noise. If you just have that, it's a lot of noise. So I have a whole list just on all our tech media friends. All the people that we have that come on the radio show every once in a while, I'll have a list to see what they're tweeting about. And if something's interesting, I'll be like, hey... That's pretty cool. Why don't you come on the show with us? And I would have never have known that otherwise. Maybe I'm not fa- some of the people I'm not Facebook friends with because we don't have that kind of relationship yet. But on a professional level, I can still see what they're posting and what kind of articles they're they're publishing. And in that sense, it makes a great uh, case. But I don't have to necessarily tweet all the time. You can just use it to consume the information if you do it the right way. So Twitter's been in the news over the past couple of years. Um, they're a public company now. Yes. Um, a lot of financial analysts are down on them because they're not making enough revenue. They're not growing. Uh, you know, will they be around in 10 years? Can, can Google or Facebook start encroaching on their space and kind of become the next Twitter or be better than Twitter? That's a that's a good point because it's 10 years old, right? Yes. And so that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be around in the next 10 years. We've seen this with the likes of like MySpace. Everyone MySpace was so big at one time. Huge. You could never imagine that it would be dis- it would disappear. Actually, it's still around, sorry. But they were bought by Rupert Murdoch at Fox. Yes. And basically run into the ground. Exactly. Will will Twitter will that same thing happen to Twitter? Will Facebook or Google uh, and my bets would be more on Google, will they buy them one day and integrate them into their platforms? Well, we've seen Google try to get into the social media space with uh, Google+, and it didn't really work. And they were gloating about how many uh, Google Plus users are on that thing. But that's just because by default of having a Gmail address, you automatically were subscribed. Do you, do you ever use Google Plus? You know what? You know what? Every once in a while I go on there to see who's on there. <laughs> I'm like, is there anybody posting on Google Plus? Yeah, I'm just not there. And there are still some people that do. Yeah. Um, but it's a very niche category. It's not like the Facebook, which is weird because Google is so big. It runs so much of our lives, but they just were unable to get into that space. So I... To your point, I think that it almost seems like a good acquisition to take Twitter. But we saw Twitter pick up Periscope, you know, the live streaming. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. We don't even use it very much anymore. And we used to Periscope the radio show all the time. But Well, and you know what? I'm, I'm, we're going to start doing it again, but we're going to be using the Facebook. Facebook. Yes. Yeah. To get more. Because uh, we were looking at the numbers and they were okay. Yeah. Uh, but I know if we I start, just think we'll hit a bigger audience with Facebook. We will hit a big, bigger audience with Facebook. With I think it's called, what, Facebook Live? Yeah, live video. Yeah, so um, it'll be interesting for us to see 
trying different platforms, doing essentially the same thing, but moving around different platforms to see what really sticks and what resonates with our viewers and our listeners. So 10 years? Uh, yes, I'm going to say yes. But Do you may- think they'll be bought in the next two years? Yes, I think they will be. They, unless they can find a different way to make money. They've already said that they're not going to increase the 140 characters. They did on the direct messages, but not for the actual tweet. Because if they did that, they're essentially a Facebook status update. Yeah. So they have to keep it at 140 characters. Or, or they're just not the same. Interesting times. When we come back uh, from the break, we will be uh, talking about smartphone batteries. Are we going to see a time where the technology catches up with the smartphone technology and give us more than a day of life. So we've got some thoughts on that. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here in the Chorus Radio Network, back after this. You are back with Get Connected, Mike and Andy here in studio. Just a little bit of time left, and then we get to enjoy the rest of the long weekend here. So, Andy, uh, smartphones, we're always getting this question, will we see the battery technology improve enough to get us more than like a day of life on a smartphone. Uh, and this is something that we actually, uh, we, we're looking at an article uh, from uh, Jonathan Orr uh, up on cbcnews.ca, uh, uh, and he's basically saying no. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, like Reddit, they do that uh, AMA or Ask Me Anything. Yeah. And there was a recent one with, the, uh, with basically a researcher on lithium-ion batteries. His name is Dr. D. Strand. And so a lot of people were asking about this. Are we going to see... You know, uh, the ability to have a phone that will last for two, three days on a single charge. And his basically answer is uh, maybe never. And, you know, the simple reason is because the manufacturers are making these phones, uh, the processors, even more and more powerful, the graphics more and more powerful. uh, And, you know, what we use them for uh, becomes more and more mapping apps, Facebook, uh, playing games, everything. And so he basically, you know, it comes down to will you buy a thicker phone? Because the manufacturers want to get these things beautiful, you know, thinner and smaller and lighter. So as they do that, there's not as much room for battery, and we still are left with the one-day battery. I I think just about anybody that has a smartphone, you need to get an external battery pack and carry it around with you uh, wherever you go. A really good one that I like is from a company called Logix. They make these really slim um, battery packs, that, and they have adapters that work for both Android and iPhone, and you can get them at London Drugs. I definitely recommend getting that because I, I just don't think, like he said, we're going to see a phone that's going to last for more than a day. In the meantime, get those extra battery packs. Exactly. So that's all the time we have left. We hope you enjoy your weekend. Mike Agarbo and Andy Brar signing off. We'll see you again next time.